This morning we're returning to the book of Matthew, and uh, we'll be in chapter 26. Just a, uh, we we're attempting to finish Matthew uh, at this point, these last uh, three chapters, 26, 27, and 28. Uh, quick reviews, just so that you uh, we kind of get started together in the same place. Matthew was uh, written to share the gospel with a Jewish audience. Matthew's primary audience was Jewish. Now, somebody will say, well, does that mean that it was just meant for the Jews? No, it's meant for all of us. But the Jewish people, he was specifically appealing to using phrases and, and idioms and things like this that would, the Jewish people would naturally understand. And so the gospel with that intent. Now, where we are, these last three chapters, uh, is uh, the last few days of the life of Christ. And so if, you, if we look at it, we're the, you know, Matthew is quite interesting when you think about it. Uh, it well, you know, written primarily to, to, to the Jews starts with, you know, with Jesus Christ and his birth and and, and Bethlehem and, and the very beginning of, of Christ and, and, his, and, and his ministry, uh, 25% of the gospel is given over to the last week of his life, the Passion Week. And so that started, uh, as far as we, we look at the book of Matthew, that started in chapter 21 with the triumphal entry and uh, also the cleansing of the temple. So here he's coming both as king and uh, high priest, uh, you know, uh, the king, the triumphal entry, the high priest cleansing the table. Uh, in chapter 22, uh, there's so many things that's that going on here, but the great commandment is one that comes to mind, uh, that we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and to love our neighbor as ourselves, with the intent of understanding that our neighbor doesn't mean somebody we know necessarily, but whoever God has put in our proximity at that point. And our love is to be extended to the point that if we see a need, we do what? We meet it if we have the means to do it. And so uh, that, you know, is part of the teaching of this last week. And then chapter 23, he really goes out and, and, and uh, comes strong against the, the scribes and the Pharisees. It's called the seven woes. Uh, and in each time that he's making a comment, he says, Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, teachers of the, of the word. And so that's chapter 23. And then chapters 24 and 25 are kind of linked together in the sense that he is acting here as a prophet. Uh, so he's king, he's high priest, he's prophet, and, and, and he is, uh, talks about the destruction of the temple that will be coming and the return of Christ, the judgment that will be coming, and the need to be ready at, 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 at what Christ is for his return. And so now, as we are in this last week, starting with chapter 26, where we are is about Tuesday night, right in that area. And, and uh, I say about because he doesn't say, oh, and on Tuesday night. But the way he phrases it, you'll see where we get that as we get into this. And I'm going to take chapter 26, verses 1 through 13. I'm going to take it in two blocks. Uh, the first block being chapters uh, verses 1 through 5. And then the next one, 6 through 13. So looking first at uh, chapter 26 of Matthew, the first five verses. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, what are the sayings? Is all the things that he's talked about in chapter 24 and 25. He's completed this discussion. He's moving on and he says, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know, that after two days, the Passover is coming. So there's where we get our time frame. And the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the place of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Jesus finished his primary teachings uh, on the second coming, on the destruction of the temple, all the things that were yet to come ahead, and now he's preparing to face the cross. And, and he makes a very clear statement. He, you know, he, he's saying, uh, you know, in, in uh, two days is the Passover. 
And then what? The coming of the Son of Man will be del- uh, is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Well, all these things I prophesied are ha- going to happen. First thing has to happen is the cross, the sacrifice, the salvation of mankind. And so Jesus is starting to prepare them again for this this this, this oncoming moment. This isn't the first time Jesus has mentioned the cross, though. And I look at it and I think, you know, how is it that these guys can't catch this? Even even at, after the resurrection, even after the Jesus walking with them for forty more days and telling them that all these things that are going to happen and that they're going to go into the world and preach the gospel and all this kind of stuff. They ask him, just before the ascension in, in Acts chapter 1, uh, they say, are we going to go back in, in Jerusalem now and kick out the Romans? I know that's a paraphrase, but that's basically what they, they say. After all of what Jesus prepared for him, that is not what's going to happen. They, they ask. And the reason for this, and it's important to see this coming into this part of the, of, the, of the teaching here, is that the disciples have been steeped since they were able to listen and hear and understand anything about the Word of God and the Messiah, that the Jesus Christ was coming as a victorious king of David's lineage and that he was going to reestablish the kingdom of Solomon with all of its glory. And that's what they saw happening. What, and, and you can't fault them for this in a sense that this is what had been taught by the, by the Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers of the Word, in the temple, in the synagogues, wherever they heard this thing. And so they, they got this over and over and over again. Every Passover was a rehearsal for, for, in their mind, the coming of the Messiah, but to establish the kingdom again. Bring them out of slavery, out of Egypt, so to speak, and establish the kingdom again. And so this is what they were looking for. And yet we have very clearly... And so the, the dying Messiah, the crucified Messiah, was not part of their thinking. And Jesus understands this. And we never see Him really get angry at them for not catching it. But he, he, he got to figure you know, at some point that he, he had to be frustrated. Matthew 16. Uh, Jesus talks about that He's going to be up and crucified. And Peter at least catches the glimpse of what Jesus says. He says, oh, no, that can never happen to you, Jesus. Now, and, and Jesus looks at him and, and, and actually says something as harsh as it gets. Get behind me, Satan. In other words, stop wanting to lead me the wrong way, Peter. That's Satan's plan to, to get me to avoid the cross. Don't, don't, don't get fouled up with that. But in Matthew 17, he goes ahead and again says that, that there, there is the cross is coming. And in Matthew 20, he says it again, uh, that, that he must die. Now, here he is giving it a time frame. He hasn't done that before. He says, in a couple of days, I'm going to be arrested. And then I'm going to be crucified. So this week, this is going to happen. Jesus is clearly telling the disciples what is ahead for him. And they clearly aren't getting the message. It doesn't fit, like I said, a lifetime of teaching that has been given to them. And so as they struggle with this, uh, it's a, I look at this and think, the one thing that we can glean from this for us is to understand that Jesus clearly knows the road ahead of him. He has known this all along. And at a, at a point in time in the Gospel of Luke, I, I, we see a point where it turns and he says, and he turned his face towards Jerusalem, which was meant you know, he's headed towards the cross. And that was about halfway through the Gospel of Luke. And, and so that picture of Jesus resolutely saying, okay, everything from now on is pointing towards this end and the accomplishment of what I'm here for. It's important that we understand that Jesus understood when when Paul or when John the Baptist in, in John chapter one verse twenty nine said, "Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world." Jesus knew that that's who he was. Jesus knew that that's what he was there for. When John went to baptize him, uh, Jesus, you know, John says, "I should be baptized by you." 
And Jesus said, no, all things need to be fulfilled, that I will be the one who completes the law so that man can be saved. That was what he was meaning. And so here John the Baptist baptizes Jesus, whom he was recognizing at that point, the Messiah. John didn't understand either the cross. He didn't really see it either. But Jesus is trying to prepare the disciples. And actually what will happen, and John makes a point to, to emphasize this, is that many of these things will come back and they'll understand in their, in their memory. They'll say, oh, now I get it. And this will be after Pentecost even. They'll, they'll be looking back as they're studying the Word of God, as they now have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and as they start to preach the Gospel. In fact, Acts chapter 2, some of this comes up. And, 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 and Peter says, this was all stuff that had to happen. And it started to come together. And they remembered as, uh, all these different teachings of Jesus via the Holy Spirit, bringing it back to mind and, and inspiring the writing of it down and all of these things so that we would even know today about this. Actually, Passover hadn't been pointing to the deliverance from a, a, a physical captive audience in the sense of delivery from Rome, in this case, uh, is where they had seen it. But it was something that was pointing clearly towards the cross. The Passover lamb, the sacrifice, the blood over the doorposts in Egypt, to protect the firstborn children. All these things were all pointing, going clear back to Exodus, all pointing to the sacrifice of the cross. And again, you would say, well, you think these people would get it, but we have the advantage of being at the point where we can look back through what Christ has done and through the letters and the epistles and the things that explain. You know, we have the Gospels that tell us the life of Christ. And then we have the epistles that explain what the life of Christ was about and how to put it into practice. And even the book of Revelation that tells us what's yet to come. And so we can look at, at it with that complete picture and say, yeah, I get it. But those at the time were going with, with what they understood. And I believe the, the disciples at this point were acting in good faith. I think Peter was always acting in good faith. But he was a stumbling block at some point. That's what Jesus was saying. Don't be my stumbling block. Get behind me, Satan. You know, I, I, you know, and, and Jesus knew that because he knew that facing the cross, if we'll get that when we start talking about the Garden of Gethsemane, was going to be an agony for him. And not just because of the pain and suffering of the nails and the, and the, and, and, and the th crown of thorns and the actual as aspects of being crucified, but that coming to that phrase, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Which is, Sermons yet to come. Passover has been pointing to this. The last two chapters, Jesus is telling them of a second, you know, that Jesus has been telling them, uh, uh, the last two chapters that we've gone through, 24 and 25, has been telling them of the final judgment. But then, like I said, first, that's where he's going to now, must come the cross. Now, what's interesting is those, those first two verses, Jesus is saying this is what's going to happen. Look again at, 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 at the, the, the next verses. Um, starting with verse 3, it says, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the place of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So they're making a plan. And, and, and I, I, I'm looking at it. Man makes his plans the way he, he wants things to go and do. And, and then there's God's plan. <laughs> and we can filter this out in lots of different ways. But here very clearly we see there's an opposition going on in the sense of God's plan and man's plan. Jesus says very clearly in verse 2, in a couple of days I'm going to be arrested and crucified. And the ones that are going to do this say very clearly in, 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 in verse you know, 5 that we're not going to do this until when? After the Passover. What were they concerned about? Well, they were concerned about the one thing that happens at Passover in Jerusalem. Literally hundreds of thousands of people. We cannot... I, 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 it, it, it's hard for us to grasp because we always think of, 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 of this as 
ancient history in, in the sense of, you know, not so many people and stuff like that. Jerusalem was no small city to start with. But people pilgrimaged from all over the world at that point, certainly all over the Mediterranean, but clear in some cases uh, from Spain, as far away as Spain and Gaul and, and Italy and as far away as, as uh, the, the North Africa and, and, and clear into the, the Central Asia area where Jews had been dispersed at least some point in their lifetime. And, and those, some of them those that had the resources every year would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for Passover to celebrate it there at the temple. And so these people came from all over. Different languages, different ethnic backgrounds, with a common faith in God and His Word coming together to celebrate what God had done and delivered them from slavery, the Romans, and that He was going to restore this kingdom and do it again. And they they looked forward to that every time they celebrated Passover together. So there were literally hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, Josephus figures that at, some, at, 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 at the Passover uh, during his time in life, which is right after this period of time, there were as many as two and a half million people in and around Jerusalem during the Passover. These people say, well, where did they stay? They, they tent cities all around the city of Jerusalem, and over into Bethany and other places that were nearby. If they had family members, they, they might be staying in those areas, but it was a crowd. And so the, 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 they're looking at this, the, the, the scribes, the Pharisees, they've got a clear resolution, and they've already made this resolution before. We've heard of it. They are going to arrest him, and they are going to kill him. This is a, a definitive statement. This is our plan. But we can't do it while there's so many people here. Two things hindering it was one, just the sheer number of people being a, a, an issue, but concerned about what? An uproar or an, actually a riot. And you have to realize that all the people in the surrounding areas of outlying uh, areas of, of the wilderness areas and, and then up into Galilee and, 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 and southern uh, Israel and, and you know, the Palestinian area and stuff, People were coming. Those people would, would be normally coming almost every year to Passover. It would be a regular thing that they could do because they were within a, a few days' journey to be able to come. Where had Jesus been teaching? All of those areas. And it says that there were many converts. Even Jewish scribes and, and Pharisees, some of them came to know Him. Even some soldiers came to know him. You know, other and so they're thinking, nah, these people are all going to be here. There'll be a, an onslaught of, of supporters of Jesus. And certainly that was validated when? Just a few days before. At the triumphal entry. And so they said, this is not the time to do this. I think it's interesting. Jesus says this is going to happen here. And they're saying this isn't the time to do this. And what we begin to see is that uh, in this contrast, you know, man thinks he's in control, in charge, but he's not. James chapter 4 makes a very clear statement to us about this. He says in verse 13, James writes, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go in such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if God wills, if God wills, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. But the idea was, was is to understand God's got a, 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 an orchestrated plan and there is not going to be a deviation from it. We cannot undo what God has planned to do. Satan had tried. Think of the, the, the Jesus in the wilderness. Uh, at the beginning of his ministry, Satan made three attempts to 
deterred Jesus from the cross. You know, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. The Word of God says. Instead of fact, Satan used the Word of God, you know, as and, and but distorted it or perverted it. The plan of God was was put together. We've discussed this before, uh, before the foundation of the world. Uh, Acts chapter or uh, Ephesians chapter one. Verses 3 through 10 says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love, and predestined us, planned ahead, if you will, predestined us for adoption. We've been talking about all these things. We're a new creature in Christ, was last week's theme, you know. Uh, all of these things God has planned. Here it is. This is this is being explained. He, he he made this plan. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of what? His will. Not according to the purpose of, of what a collective group of people think or what a collective group of people vote on or think they should have, but according to His will. To the, you know, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. God's plan. Things will be accomplished according to His purpose, according to His will. Paul says it again in Galatians in chapter 4. He says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So that all we've talked about this summer of what that we might become, ultimately ending in this idea of a new creature in Christ, all of this that we've been talking about was the part of the plan before the foundation of the world. And at just the perfect time, God sent His Son. Not a day early, not a day late. And that's something that is, is probably one of the hardest things for me to, to deal with at times is God's time schedule versus mine. I don't know if anybody else has a problem, and I say that very you know, you know, rhetorically, so to speak. You know, I, I, I know the truth. We all struggle with this. How many times do I, you know, make a plan? This I'm going to do today, tomorrow, the next day. And then I had no idea that this was going to interfere with that or that this was going to happen or this was going to come up and change this. Uh, I come out and find that my car, I'm in a hurry. I'm running late. And I come out and my car what? Well, either that or has a flat tire. That seems to be more my, my, my experience than... It won't start. I haven't got a clue where I picked up the nail. It doesn't look like anything that came out of my shop. Maybe it was in the gravel, last load of gravel that I got. I don't know. But here's my flat tire, and I'm, I am upset. I am frustrated. I am not a happy camper. I've already kicked the tire, uh, you know, and and that did a lot of good because my 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 right foot is the one I kick with, and it's also the one that hurts the most, and all the time. And so I'm 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 sitting there just you know beside myself, so to speak, and I'm accomplishing nothing but 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 venting. Okay. What I should be doing, and this really came to me one time. <laughs> Thank you, Lord, for this flat tire. Has God allowed the tire to be flat? Somebody says, that's getting too narrow, too specific. Too specific. I'm saying no. God has allowed the tire to be flat. 
Is he sparing me from something critical or serious down the road that, that could have happened? I, you know, I can't answer that question other than the fact that this is a character-building point moment. Romans tells us that all of these trials and tribulations, many of them having to do with our, 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 our walk and the public attack and stuff like that, but also individual small things are all there to what? Shape our character and to cause us to rest in God and His purposes and His will. And so I want to encourage you in the midst of this, we're good at making plans, but we should always be taking James' advice. If God wills this, this, and this. But if God intervenes with a different, you know, an alternative plan, so be it. I, will, I need to learn to roll with that. Man thinks he's in control. Certainly these Pharisees and scribes thought they were in control. They're used to being the overlords of things, way beyond the capacity that God intended for them. And so they're used to being, like Jesus would say, like the Gentiles who lorded over their, their people. They, these men were lording it over the, 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 the Hebrew people constantly. And they liked being in charge. This is one of the things that... that put Jesus at odds with them was he's showing authority that we don't have. I'm convinced that some of them recognize that this man is nothing less than a prophetic person from God. But we're going to kill him anyway because he's taking away what I have. My power, my authority. A couple of the parables, I think, lead to us to understand that. But what we need to see for this for us is that God has a, is, His sovereignty is absolute. His plan will be accomplished. What He says will happen. When we go to the book of Revelation and look ahead uh, to what He promises and ultimately a new heaven and a new earth, we can rest with absolute confidence because we can see what He's already accomplished and, and, and prophesied and then brought about to happen. And so we can trust that He is going to deliver according to His plan. You know, I just read from you Ephesians and, and, and Galatians. In Luke chapter 24, and I, I refer to this uh, every now and then, uh, verses 13 to 27 is the section of the road to Emmaus. And He's walking along with, uh, with two disciples who, that are returning to, to their, their home in Emmaus right after the, the, the crucifixion and the resurrection. The empty tomb is what they understood at this point. They didn't know for sure how to put it all together. And, they, and Jesus says, you know, what's up, guys? And they, they said, are you the only guy around that doesn't know? You know, what, this is what has happened. And Jesus said, it says, then Jesus explained to them Moses and the prophets and put it together in such a way that they could begin to understand all these things, what? Had to happen exactly this way in order to bring about God's sovereign plan that was established before, Ephesians, the foundation of the world and started at the, just the right time, Galatians chapter 4. Fifty days past that point, Day of Pentecost, we have Peter's message. And, in, and you find that in Acts chapter 2, where the, 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 he's preaching to, to all who have gathered because of the, the, the disturbance, I guess you might say, that's come forth uh, from the upper room and the, and the outflowing of noise and, 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 and rush of sound. It said, the sound of rushing water and different things. And people are gathered saying, you know, what's going on? And these men are speaking strangely. And some of them are thinking, man, these guys must be drunk. I don't understand a word they're saying. You know, and, and so Peter's explaining all of this. And I'm not going to go into detail other than verse, verses 22 through 24, where, G, where Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through them in your midst. You saw this stuff with your own eyes. 
as you yourselves know you did. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised Him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for Him to be held by it. This plan that God put together, and even those who crucified Him were acting within the framework of God's plan. God's plan. He will not be you know, stopped. It will not be it will be accomplished. Jesus was in control of what was going to happen, what and, and, and going and the cross. He was in control at that point in time. He did not have his life taken from him. He gave it. He was willing to do this. In the Gospel of, of John, early on in, you know, in chapter uh, 10, uh, Jesus speaks of Himself as, as the Good Shepherd. And, and starting with the 14th verse, He says, I am the Good Shepherd. I know My own and My own know Me, just as the Father knows Me and I know the Father. And I lay down My life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not in this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. Of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from the Father. Jesus is in control of this situation. It's always in His hands. We're told that He could have called down legions of angels. And I always say, if two angels did what they did to Sodom and Gomorrah in the, in the valley there, think of what the twelve legions, 70,000 plus angels would do. It was in His hands. It was His plan. By the way, His comment of that in verse 19, just to show, there was again a division among the Jews because of these words. And just in the next chapter, His plan, the plan to kill Him after He raises Lazarus from the dead. And by the way, guess what else? who else they planned to kill? Lazarus. Because he was the proof of what Jesus had done. There's an irony here that you can't, you just don't want to miss. The enemies of Jesus thought they were getting rid of the problem. And instead, they ended up fulfilling the prophecy and accomplishing God's plan to the letter. You go to Psalm 22, and it talks about the, 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 his pierced hands and his feet. And even down uh, to the to the, the, those that had crucified Him being at the foot of the cross and casting lots for His clothing. A thousand years before it happened. God's plan was accomplished. Isaiah 53 and so many other places that you can go and see God's hand being accomplished. So here's that first part of this that I wanted you to be sure to, to, to get was that uh, the, the, Jesus is prophesying again the time of his death. And now he's saying, two days down the road, I'm going to be arrested and, and crucified. And you don't see much of a discussion about it. Matthew doesn't record it. But the reality is that I'm sure that as the disciples hear that, it's kind of like, I wonder what he really means. Is there something we're missing? You know, what are we missing here? He, he's, he, there's something more to it than that. And there was, but it was they were looking for how it was going to come together to get rid of the Romans and not realizing that it, that wasn't the issue. Now, we move from, uh, you know, as he's talking to, to, to the, uh, in reference to the, the plot that was established to kill Jesus and God's plan versus man's plan, all these things, we have Jesus at Bethany. He's at Lazarus' house, normally in Bethany, but here it says he's at uh, Simon uh, the leper's house. Let's look at it in verse 6 uh, through 13. 
Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. I'll stop there just to explain. This is probably something that was passed down into the family. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a valuable item. We're told in other scripture that its value is, is worth a year's wages. And it's got a, a very unique Middle East, from India actually, oil in it. And so it's, it's something that was very special, very costly. And, and, and that's what it's saying here, expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head and he reclined it as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? This could have been sold for a large sum, of, uh, sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Meaning physically in your presence like I am right now. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Again, his death comes into the picture. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Wow, what an honor. So what happened here? Well, at Simon the leper's home is where they are. They're reclining for dinner around the table. Simon the leper, don't try to, to figure out exactly what's, what leper this is. He'll be not, there's scholars that have gone all over and said, oh, it's this Simon over here. It was one of the ten lepers that Jesus healed over here. You know, they, we don't know. But we know it's past tense by the fact that he's at home in his house and they're meeting there. Okay? But you ought to understand in the Jewish culture, there's a mindset that the scribes and the Pharisees have that they've established, and it's wrong. And it's kind of like, once a leper, always a leper. You couldn't have been a leper unless God really was angry with you and you were really bad. Therefore, we're going to have nothing to do with you. So where did Jesus have supper in Bethany? Besides Lazarus' house, whom they're after to kill? They have, they have it at Simon the leper's house. It's not going to have any Jewish scribes there. To, to interfere. And it says a woman, we find out from the Gospel of John, it was Mary, the sister of Lazarus and Martha. Mary. Uh, and, and she's there and she has this alabaster flask, very expensive oil, and she pours it out on his head. And we read when we put the mark together in this as well and on his feet as he's reclining at the table. What she's done is she's anointing him in a unique way. It was not uncommon in some cases, if, if the person had the resources, to anoint with a fragrant oil the head of a visitor as a welcome. That's not what happened here. She broke the bottle and the whole bottle was poured out. It's a one-time event with this bottle. It might have been used for her marriage and her relationship with her husband in a special way. Here she uses it to honor Jesus. Mary appears a couple other times that we see her. She appears in, in, in the Gospel of Luke where she's at odds with her sister because her sister's in the kitchen busy making them and preparing food and doing the things that need to be done. Where's Mary? Sitting at the feet of Jesus. And Martha comes out and gives Jesus kind of a what for in the reference to, why are you letting her do this? She's supposed to be in there doing work with me. That's what we do. And Jesus says, she's made the better choice. We could have waited for dinner to be prepared after I was done teaching. She made the right choice. We see her at the feet of Jesus. We see her again at the feet of Jesus in John chapter 11 when, when Jesus sends for her. At, well, he the, the, hasn't quite arrived at the tomb of Lazarus, but he's headed there. And he sends for her. 
Martha's already talked to him, come to him because she heard he was coming, and she runs to him. Both of them are upset with Jesus because Jesus hadn't come while Lazarus was still alive. But she makes it absolutely clear as she gets to approach Jesus, she falls at his feet and says, if you had only been here, Lazarus would be alive. What does she understand about Jesus? He has the power and authority over what? Life and death in the sense of you know keeping somebody alive. But she, she didn't quite grasp the, that picture of if that person has died. She didn't understand that part, that he had authority there too. And, and so we see her, though, at the feet of Jesus again. And then here we see her anoint him with oil and then, and oil and then anointing his feet and then at his feet, cleanse, you know, wiping his feet with her hair. Now, today we would look at that as some kind of sensuous thing and, 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 and there's a lot of people that have gone back and looked at it and said, see, he was, he, 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 you know, he was really a man and there was a sexual appeal here. had nothing to do with it. It was an honor of how she perceived him. And, and so, you know, she's, she's doing this, she's using this oil for this, and, and, and the disciples see it, and their response is, Waste! You know, what a waste! This valuable, they knew what it was by the smell. And they said, this valuable oil could have been used to, it's a year's worth of wages. It could have been used to feed poor people. And you think about, I'm not going to, I want to be careful that I don't fault the disciples too much here. Think of the teachings that Jesus gave them about taking care of the poor. And in Matthew chapter 25, how you're going to deal with the hungry and the naked and, the, and, the, and the, those in prison and the thirsty and, and all of this. You know, those, when you've done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. The importance of ministering to the needs of those around us, not necessarily... The, the needs of your family and friends only, them first, you know, first your family, your church, but those around you as well if you have that opportunity and the means that God has given you. And if you don't do it, it's, it James makes it clear, if you have the means to help the, the woman and, and her child in your pocket and you say, oh, bless thee and go in peace and may God bless you and you don't minister to their needs, you're in sin. So this is no small thing that Jesus has imparted to them. So it's not, it's not an unthinkable response. It's just that they haven't got it yet. And so their response is, Mary shouldn't be doing this. We should sell that and, and take care of the needs of the, of the poor. But note, John makes it really clear who instigated this. Judas. Why was Judas upset? Because he is the guy with the purse. He's the guy that takes care of the money, and he, John makes it absolutely clear, Judas is a thief. So Judas is the one stirring the pot here. But their response is not out of character, is what I'm trying to say. They're looking at it and saying, but it is a thought to us, all of us, to be careful how we assess what people do with their resources and their money. You know, it's real easy to judge what other people should be doing with their resources and money. We're not accountable for them. We are accountable for ourselves. And I, I have to tell you, I have enough trouble being accountable with my resources that I don't need to be worrying about yours. Now, I want you to notice that they were indignant with what they saw as the waste because of the cost of this perfume. They weren't indignant about what Mary was doing. That she was anointing him wasn't a problem. But she should have been using the cheap oil. The cheap fragrance. Not the expensive stuff. Not the good stuff. That's what we normally do. Nobody breaks a, 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 a bottle of alabaster nard to, to anoint somebody when he comes to the visit. We have that oil in the cupboard over there that is plentiful and it's scented. And we, we just do the couple of drops on the head and say, welcome, my friend. Don't do that. What a waste. Jesus' response. Why do you trouble her? Why are you bothering her? 
She's done a beautiful thing. And then he commends Mary. She has done it to prepare me for burial. And that this will be remembered wherever the Gospel goes. This will be remembered. Again, his, like I said, his death being referred to. He's preparing me for my burial. It would appear that Mary grasped at least a little of what the disciples were missing in reference to Jesus' coming arrest and death. Some people say this was just circumstance. I think as Jesus looked into her heart and said, this is a beautiful thing that she'd done, and then he equated it to anointing of her burial, that somehow she had a grasp that something was coming up and that this was going to be her last opportunity to show her devotion and her, and, and her love for who he is and what he's doing, recognizing that somehow in the midst of this, something bad is around the corner. You've got to remember, she lived in Bethany, near Jerusalem. The rumor was out. There's a mark on him. He's a marked man. The disciples thought with his authority, he's going to overthrow that. Somehow she's catching a glimpse. And I really believe that that's the character here, that what's going on. There's a division in, in, in different theologians as to how they look at this. I think she's catching a glimpse. She's got a, a heart that is, is looking at, the, at Jesus and has been hearing his teaching. She's been sitting at his feet. She's been listening to him. And she's put a few things together and said, something is amiss here. Something's afoot. And this might be my last opportunity. Nothing less than anointing him as what he's already revealed himself to be, King and Messiah. Nothing less than that. Clearly, an act of love, devotion, and worship. And Jesus, you know, he didn't refuse it. He received it. It's interesting, through his ministry, when there's been accolades of worship you know, brought to him, he received it. It doesn't say, oh, no, 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 no. So... She's, I believe, like I said, she's recognizing nothing less that he is the king, Messiah, that they are waiting for. We see that. And she was honoring him at that meal. And I think with the way Jesus put it together, looking into her heart, she was honoring him with the thought that this might be my last opportunity to do this. Who knows, maybe she's been looking for this opportunity for a while. It was the biggest, it was the most valuable thing she had. I, I bet you Martha, if she'd had an opportunity to stop her, would have. I didn't mean anything by you, Martha. You looked right at me when I said that. <laughs> uh, but but the, 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 the reality that, the, that maybe Lazarus would have stopped her. And that's why it didn't happen at their house. It happened at Simon the leper's house. There was nobody to intervene. And it was her opportunity. She took the greatest thing she had to offer and poured it out on Jesus because of her devotion. And it was an act, I believe, of worship. So I look at that and I'm thinking... And, I, and it's an appropriate way to, for us to respond to this now. What does God look at us and, and, and he does, you know, what are we to bring? I don't have a, a year's, you know, I, I can't put a year's wages on the, on the altar. Not at this point. It doesn't mean that God won't allow me to have the opportunity at some future point to be able to do something like that. Or in the past have been able to do something like that, but I can't do it today. Not without serious overdraft protection. So, what does God, what can I bring to his, his altar? And Paul makes it really, really clear for us. What God wants from us, and what he's always wanted from us, if we go back into some of the, the prophetics 
words of God and in the Psalms, what He's always wanted. Psalm 51 tells us what He's always wanted from us. is ourselves. Our heart. Paul puts it simply, he wants us to offer ourselves as a, what? Living sacrifice. Which is acceptable, pleasing and acceptable to God. And as a result, his commitment as we offer ourselves is to change us from the things of the world to the things of his kingdom. He's going to, instead of allowing us to be conformed to the things of the world, through the power of his Holy Spirit, he's going to transform us into kingdom people. The people He's already decided that we are. The chosen people. The adopted people. The new creatures in Christ. And He's going to complete that work. And He has the authority to do that because He's the one that paid the price to open the door. And, and, and He did it willingly as the plan of God before the foundation of the world that even though the... the, 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 the the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the Word at that time and the priests tried their hardest to deter it and to stop it. They fell right into God's plan and accomplished His will unwillingly because God's plan won't be stopped. Which means, if I am faithful to offer myself as a living sacrifice, something else has to happen first, by the way. I have to believe in my heart that Jesus is the Christ and accept Him as the, as the Son of God. But if I've done that, and I offer myself as a living sacrifice, and I'm sincere in my, my, my desire to do that, and that doesn't come from me, it comes through the Holy Spirit in me, then He is faithful to accomplish that. And I can rest with absolute confidence that I am a child of God, destined for heaven, and the new heavens and the new earth are something that I am able to look forward to with absolute confidence. That's what Jesus wants to do for us. It's His plan. He came at just the right time to accomplish it. Not a, not a minute early, not a minute late. And He's never early or late. He's always right on time. Always. And so as we go into communion... All of us who rest with the confidence that we confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised Him from the dead and that we are saved. That's what Romans tells us. It's on the Romans road on the back of our bulletin. Then we can come to the communion table with a sense of joy and a sense of worship, but always with the sense of offering ourselves as a living sacrifice, saying, God, I don't want to be the person I am today. I want to be transformed. I ask the ushers to come forward to pass the communion out, and I would ask the uh, worship team to come up, please.